Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to be here and to actually see faces looking back at me and not just cameras. And yet, the cameras are still here, and we're very thankful for that because we know there are lots of people who can't be here in the room with us today who still get to worship with us. So we're excited for that. We are starting a new sermon series today on Proverbs called Wise Versus Lies, and I'm really excited to kick that off for you. So we're going to start right at the beginning of the book, and I'm going to read it for you. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first seven verses. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen. This is what it says. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and we'll get started. God, thank you so much for the privilege it is to be here with my brothers and sisters again, looking into your word. And Lord, we desperately need wisdom. As it cries out in the streets, give us ears to hear it. Holy Spirit, would you be a filter over my mouth and over the ears of my brothers and sisters so that only truth would be proclaimed today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to imagine something for me. I want you to imagine that it's 2 a.m. and you've been sitting up awake for hours waiting for someone that you love to come home. Maybe a spouse, maybe a kid, maybe a friend, but someone that you expected to be home hours ago. And you've texted, you've called, you haven't heard anything in return, and you've gotten to the point that you're not quite sure what you should do. Should you call the police? Should you go out looking for them? Should you call friends? And right when you're about to pick up the phone, the door opens and the person you've been waiting for walks into the room and you see that they're okay. I want you to think about what you would feel in that moment. And if you're able to really put yourself in that situation, you probably know it's not just one emotion that you're feeling because you're going to feel joy and relief and maybe celebration. You're going to be glad that they're okay and that they're home but you're also going to feel anger and frustration and confusion. See, human beings are complex creatures and we are perfectly capable of experiencing more than one emotion at once. And we're perfectly capable of experiencing even conflicting emotions. And that's where I find myself this morning because I am so stoked to be here in this room with real people. Um, I'm so excited to be starting a new sermon series. I'm always excited when I get to preach. I'm really excited that the Groffs are here. 
not just that we have a new lead pastor, which is great enough, but that it's Tyler. And as I've gotten to know him, I'm so excited to get to work with him. But at the same time, uh, my heart's heavy because my wife and kids can't be here this morning because the debilitating effects of COVID-19 are still being felt all around us. Um, I'm hurting for brothers and sisters in Central Florida who woke up with trees down and roofs damaged from tornadoes last night. I, just this week, um, my young adult community has been affected by two deaths. I'm grieving for people who have lost their jobs and aren't sure if they're going to get them back. And most of all, my heart is broken this morning for my black brothers and sisters in our nation. And I feel um, ashamed and I feel angry and sad that people created in the image of God have to struggle to be heard and have to fear um, senseless violence and discrimination. And I'm also saddened that people have chosen to respond to this with even more chaos and violence in what's already a confusing situation. And so I feel the impulse to celebrate this morning because there is lots to celebrate. Um, but I also, I don't want to act like this isn't one of the darkest chapters in the history of our country because it is. And so we're going to hold those things in tension this morning. And we're going to have to kind of be okay with that because the sermon that I started planning three weeks ago is not the sermon that you're going to hear today because we need to speak to what's going on. Um, it seems providential to me that in a time when we desperately need wisdom, we're starting a new series on a book that's all about wisdom, on the book of Proverbs. And you'll find that we aren't going to be going straight through the book of Proverbs, uh, each week, whoever's preaching is going to pull out a theme from Proverbs and use uh, Proverbs that kind of support that theme. But because we're starting a new book today, I wanted to start at the beginning and give you some of the background and some of the purpose. So the first seven verses that we just looked at are kind of an intro to the book. And they're incredibly helpful because it tells us what the book is, who wrote it, who it's written for, and what the purpose of the book is. So the very first verse says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And so right off the bat, when we read the Proverbs of Solomon, we should ask, what are Proverbs? Um, it helps if we can know what kind of literature it is that we're reading. And we inherently know this because you wouldn't read like instructions for a microwave the same way you would read The Hobbit or something like that. And you would interpret it and apply it completely differently. And so we need to know what we're dealing with when we start a new book. The book of Proverbs is a kind of literature. It's a genre in the Bible that scholars refer to as wisdom literature. And as you would probably guess, wisdom literature is meant to impart wisdom to the reader. And wisdom literature includes Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. So the theme of all the wisdom literature is the fear of the Lord. The very first verse of Job says that Job was one who feared God and turned away from evil. And later Job says, behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. So Job says, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13, it says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
And Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it doesn't mean that we're afraid of God. Um, For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, God is our heavenly father and we don't need to fear him because he is all loving. He's compassionate and he always has our best interest in mind. So he's not out to get us. Fear of the Lord means that we have a sense of awe and profound respect toward God. We just finished our series on Daniel and I want you to think about those stories of Daniel. Think about what Daniel didn't fear. He didn't fear what people thought about him. He didn't fear speaking against a ruler. He didn't fear death. He didn't fear punishment. He didn't fear the mouths of hungry lions. And really, it's probably not so much that he didn't fear those things, but he feared God more than those things. His loyalty to God outweighed any fear of man or fear of death that he may have had. So I think that's a good way of thinking through what the fear of the Lord is. And so you might wonder, why is there such a link between wisdom and the fear of the Lord? And I think it's because human knowledge and understanding are limited. It's only through fearing the Lord that we can begin to have true understanding because we can't know why everything happens. But if we know God, if, he know, if we know that he's always moving and that he's good and that he's for us, we can navigate the ambiguities of life with some peace and some trust and some hope. But there's a big difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And we're going to look more at that. But the wisdom literature in the Bible is meant to impart the wisdom of God. And the particular way that the wisdom is imparted through the book of Proverbs is, as you might guess, through Proverbs. That's, that's the way it imparts the wisdom. So back to our question, what is a proverb? This is my definition of a proverb. Having read some different commentaries and biblical scholars, I ripped them all off and put some things together, and this is what I came up with. A proverb is a saying or a maxim that concisely states wisdom in a memorable and practical way. I'll say that again. A proverb is a saying or a maxim that concisely states wisdom in a memorable and practical way. So um, an example of this would be one of my favorite proverbs, Proverbs 27, 17. And it says, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. You hear that and you probably already have some idea of what it means. I could preach a whole sermon on it. There's a lot that I could say about it, but it's summed up in one easy to remember verse. Um, So Proverbs in the wisdom literature are kind of distinct from Job and Ecclesiastes because they tend to be a little more cheery and idealistic. Um, So like, for example, Proverbs kind of sets it up like, if you fear God and trust in the Lord, everything's going to go well for you. But if you've read Job, you know, it starts with saying Job feared God and pretty quickly you see everything didn't go well for him. It all ended up well, but there were a lot of twists and turns. And then if you've read Ecclesiastes, you probably are familiar that it is over and over again saying meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. So there's kind of this darkness to Ecclesiastes and Job that isn't as present in Proverbs And my friend, uh, Brian, back in Nashville, he's a good friend that I've had since college. 
we communicate almost solely through um, texting inside jokes and dumb pictures and memes to one another. And uh, he didn't have any idea that I was going to be preaching on Proverbs today. But a few days ago, he sent me a meme. And I think we have that that you can see. So we have this, um, I guess you'd say goth family, and it's like super dark, super serious, Ecclesiastes, Job, Lamentations. And then you have Proverbs that's like, hey guys, Um, that's stupid. And I have no real point to drive home with that, but I had to share it with you. Um, But knowing that Proverbs can be kind of idealistic and a little more sunny, um, doesn't mean that we shouldn't take it seriously. The Proverbs are meant to be pondered and to shape the way we live but they're not black and white commandments. So you don't read the Proverbs the way that you read the 10 commandments. Um, The 10 commandments are very black and white. Thou shalt not kill. The Proverbs are different from that. And they're also not promises. And I'll give you an example of that. In Proverbs 22, verses 22 and 23, listen what it says. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. So if I were to distill that down, it's basically saying if you rob or oppress the poor, you're going to be killed. And we can say, is that true? And in a sense, it is true. And in a sense, we could say, no, that's not true because we all know of situations where someone has robbed or oppressed or even killed the poor and they've gotten away with it. So Proverbs imparts wisdom, but it also takes wisdom to apply and interpret the Proverbs. And that's what we see here in the intro. It doesn't say memorize these and you'll be wise. It says these Proverbs will help us understand words of insight and receive instruction and wise dealing. But it all has to begin with fearing the Lord. So if you go back to verse one, again, it says that they're Proverbs and that they're Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David. And so a big question is who wrote the Proverbs? And because it says that's who wrote them, we ought to take it at its word. It's the simplest reading of the text. And that's what the church has traditionally throughout history um, believed. And of course, there are always going to be liberal scholars who argue with whatever the tradition of the church is. But there's, there's no reason that we shouldn't believe that Solomon, the son of David, wrote these. Um, some portions are clearly attributed to someone else. So for example, Proverbs 30 says that they're sayings of Agur. And that's fine. It could be that Solomon compiled all these sayings and included those, or it could be that someone later took wisdom of Solomon and threw in some other sayings. But regardless, it's reasonable to conclude that King Solomon, who was the son of King David and Bathsheba, the story that you know, wrote the bulk of the Proverbs. And knowing this gives us good insight into the historical context and even the kinds of things that Solomon would have been reading and not reading. Um, David was the second king of Israel, and he had 19 sons. Solomon was not the firstborn son, but in God's providence, Solomon was the chosen heir to the throne of Israel. And in 1 Kings 2, when David was on his deathbed, he left Solomon with these words. 
Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimony, as it is written in the law of Moses. So what does that tell us? It tells us that if Solomon did what his father asked him to do on his deathbed, that he read the Torah. He read the first five books of the Old Testament. And if he did, then he would have known Deuteronomy 17. It's interesting, Deuteronomy 17 was written long before there ever was a king or before it was even on the radar of the Israelites that there was going to be a king. But it tells, uh, it says that every Israelite king was to write for himself a copy of the law. And then in verse 19, it says, and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. David told him, read the word. He read the word and it said, fear the Lord. So this is probably what Solomon is getting at when he says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge in chapter one and the beginning of wisdom in chapter nine. So who are the Proverbs for? The long and short of it is there for all of us. Uh, they were primarily written for young men transitioning into manhood. So like in verse four, it says to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. It was probably specifically written for Solomon's sons who would have basically been princes and especially his son Rehoboam, who was going to become king after him. But what's interesting is in other contemporary ancient Near Eastern writings, and when I say ancient, ancient Near Eastern, that just means things that were happening in the same time and same region as what was going on in Solomon and the Proverbs. In other contemporary ancient Near Eastern writings, it would usually include the author and it would include a recipient. By not including a recipient at the beginning of Proverbs, um, Solomon was kind of generalizing it so that it could apply to all of Israel. So he says um, in verse four, he addresses the youth, but in verse five, he also addresses those who are wise and have understanding. He addresses both men and women in Proverbs. So in short, who are the Proverbs for? They're for all of us. And what's the purpose? We've already said that Proverbs is wisdom literature and that uh, the theme of all wisdom literature is the fear of the Lord. But verses two through four give us even more specific purposes for the book of Proverbs. First, it says to know wisdom and instruction. And when you're in the Old Testament and you read the word know, it's, it's usually not meaning like, oh, I know my address or I know who wrote Slaughterhouse-Five. It's, it's an intimate relational knowing. It's knowledge. It's being intimately acquainted with wisdom instruction. The second purpose is to understand words of insight. And I want you to notice it doesn't say that the Proverbs are the words of insight. The Proverbs give you the tools to be able to understand words of insight. The third purpose is to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. So see, this goes far beyond what's black and white and just do's and don'ts. This goes down into the gray areas and the nuances of life. Anybody here feel like you could use some instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, in justice, and in equity? 
I think we all could. And the fifth purpose of the book is to give knowledge and discretion to the youth. The intro, oh, I skipped the fourth one. Give prudence to the simple. And that's basically saying, uh, give wisdom to those who lack it. And I think that means all of us. It's interesting when you think, uh, like if I were praying to have enough money to pay rent, I would know when I got it, you know? Like I could wake up and say, God, thank you so much that you provided for rent. But with wisdom, we pray for it, but you're never like, thanks God, thanks for the wisdom, got it, I'm set now. You know, wisdom is something that we always need. Um, And so even in thinking about giving prudence to the simple, there's a sense in which that applies to all of us. So the intro ends with the call to fear the Lord and really a call to choose. And the question is, will you choose wisdom or will you choose folly? And uh, it's interesting because wisdom is often personified as a lady and so is folly. So the question is, will you choose lady wisdom or will you choose lady folly? If the theme of all the wisdom literature is fear the Lord, then the theme of Proverbs may be choose wisdom. And when we talk about wisdom in Proverbs and the rest of the Bible, there's a big difference between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Think about the wise men in Daniel. When King Nebuchadnezzar had a problem or the other kings, he would call his wise men together, but his wise men were not able to interpret the dream. They were not able to interpret the handwriting on the wall because they were operating based on the wisdom of the world. But God created all the world with purpose and order, and he knows how we can best thrive. And that's the wisdom that he gives us through the word. Our daughter, Lucy, is two now, and she operates on a lot of very faulty logic that makes perfectly good sense to her. And I could give you lots of of examples, but I'll give you one that has to do with her eating. So whenever she's eating and she wants something, she asks for food, she usually specifies big. And it's really cute because she always puts a long space in there like big chip, big apple. Um, But when she says big, what she really means is whole. She doesn't want like a piece of a chip. She wants a whole chip. And she doesn't want me to cut an apple up for her because she wants the whole apple. But the thing is, as her dad, I know Hey, she's got a little bitty mouth and very few teeth. And when I give her a whole apple, she just kind of like makes angry faces and puts some gashes on it. And then it ends up on the floor with like lint and crumbs and we just throw it away. And so what I do when she wants apple is I slice it up for her, but she doesn't want that. And I, I could, I could slice up six apples and put in front of her and then put in a whole apple over here. And she's going to go for the whole apple every time because in her little two-year-old logic, bigger is more and bigger is always better. And I don't think I need to explain to you why that's not sound logic. Um, And if you've ever um, dealt with toddlers, I don't think I need to explain to you how exhausting it is to try to explain to her the logic of, no, this is actually just the same amount. I just cut it up so that you can eat it. It's also frustrating because I just want to say, hey, Lucy, I know you don't understand me. I know you don't understand this, but I'm daddy. I've got your best interest in mind. Will you just do it because you trust me? Because you trust that I'm going to do good for you? 
And of course, that's the choice that we face every day in relation to God. He knows what's best for us, but we think we know better. The wisdom of the world operates on what seems best to us, what seems best in our best interest. Uh, but only the God who created us even knows what is best for us. And often the wisdom of God looks like foolishness. It looks like folly to the world, but it's of far more value than what the world values. And I think this is, I think this is key. When we're confronted with wisdom, it really exposes what we fear and what we value. Um, I don't think the contrast of God's wisdom and the world's wisdom is laid out any better than in 1 Corinthians 1. And uh, we're going we're gonna to read a kind of long passage. And if I were listening to a sermon, this might be the point where I kind of like zone out. But I ask you to stick with me because this is really important. I normally read from the ESV, but I think the NIV is a little um, easier to understand. So uh, read with me starting in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. For the message of the cross, and that's the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. And that's a quote from Isaiah 29. And that's not saying God is anti-science. He's saying, I created it all. I know more than you can possibly understand. I'm blowing your wisdom out of the water. Verse 20, it says, where is the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In this next verse, it's kind of wordy, but I want you to take it in. It changed my life. When I was in college, I went to a state school and I was minoring in religion and I was one of the only Christians in the entire religion program. And whenever I spoke up, in defense of Christianity, I always felt stupid and I always felt foolish. And I felt that my classmates and my teachers always had better, better arguments than I did. But listen to what Paul says in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Do you see what he's saying? We can't know God through the wisdom of the world. In fact, the wisdom by which we know God appears as foolishness. The wisdom of truth, the wisdom, the wisdom of scripture, the wisdom of the gospel appears as foolishness. And it says, God is pleased through that foolishness. So if you're among your coworkers, among your classmates, among friends that maybe you grew up with and your paths diverged and you kept going to church and they got too smart, too cool, too jaded, whatever it was, embrace the foolishness. We don't have to try to make this palatable because it's the truth. It's almost a promise. It's going to look foolish to the world, but God rejoices in the foolishness that's preached to save those who believe. And I want to skip down to verse 26, and I want you to hear this, not like Paul talking to Corinthians 2,000 years ago, but like Paul talking to you this morning. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. He's saying, think of what you were before you were a Christian. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, not in his intellect, not in his riches, not in his job, not in his clique, not in his power, certainly not in the color of his skin. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. And he's not far off. He is right here in our midst. Proverbs 1.20 says, wisdom cries aloud in the street. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. It's not elusive, but we've proven that we're very capable of tuning out the cries in the street. The wisdom of God goes far beyond do's and don'ts. And wisdom is how we fear the Lord and the ambiguities and the gray areas of life. And that's what we all desperately need, maybe now more than ever. And so I want you to know that this week, your pastors, your elders, the staff, we've been wrestling through what's going on in our country. And I was talking to the other pastors and we all agreed the last thing that we want to communicate is that the study of the book of Proverbs is separate from what's going on in our country. So it's not like, oh man, uh, coronavirus and, you know, racism and things like that. We should talk about those, but let's hit pause on that. Let's do a Bible study. What we are studying has something to say to the church of Christ. So the approach is let's see what God's word has to say about the place that we find ourselves. And I do believe that Proverbs and the rest of scripture does speak to how we navigate as Orangewood being a predominantly white church in a time of deep hurt and racial unrest. And as I begin to wrap this up, I first want to say to my black brothers and sisters that I'm truly grieved and I'm truly sorry. And I'm sorry that we still find ourselves in this place um, that you as image bearers have to live in fear. Um, and I know that this deeply affects not just black people, but really all people who aren't white Americans. And I'm also aware that we have brothers and sisters here in our congregation and our families. I have a good friend, brothers and sisters who are in law enforcement that are not the ones abusing their power, that are not the ones doing horrible things because someone is a different race. Um, they're earnestly doing the good work that God has called them to do, but because of the horrific actions of some, they're being demonized and now they're being discriminated against themselves. Um, and I also know that there are people here in our congregation, here in our midst, who have been sounding this alarm a long time before it became the hot scoop in the media. And uh, I wanna say I'm sorry because I haven't done my part, frankly. The issues are complex and deep-rooted and we need wisdom. My guess is that most of the people who are listening to this sermon this morning are not the down 
downtrodden and the disinherited and the disenfranchised, many of you may be like me. You're observing what's happening and hating it, but you're just not sure how you're supposed to engage in it. And I have to confess that systemic racism and discrimination, it hasn't moved my heart as it should in the past. And I've told myself, I didn't own slaves. I'm not racist. I'm not discriminating against anyone. So there's really nothing that I need to do. And my guess is that some of you have those same thoughts and feelings. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, I don't want you to um, think that my goal or Orangewood's goal is to hammer you or to shame you or be heavy handed because quite frankly, I have no room to do that. Um, I'm in no position to shame anyone. But I do want to share perhaps a different perspective and what I think is a biblical perspective. And I want to give you two reasons that my heart has changed. The first one is difficult to ignore because it's so inherently biblical. It's straightforward on the surface, but it's hard to apply practically. But I'm going to give you two verses. Romans 12:15 tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And Galatians 6, 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're called to enter into the experience of others and the suffering of others. And if I'm not suffering myself, I am called to enter into your suffering. How much more am I called to enter into your suffering if I have caused it, either through my actions or through my lack of action? So I want you to think about it this way. If I drop a bowling ball on your foot, it's going to hurt your foot, whether I meant to do it or whether it was an accident. But the proper response is to say, I'm so sorry. Is there something I can do to help? You would think it was silly if I said, you know, I didn't mean to do that. I'm not apologizing for that. So the first reason my heart changed is because I heard God's call to weep with those who weep. And the second reason is a little bit harder to explain. I've always been grieved when I heard about racism and especially uh, racial violence. But because of this, I didn't actually feel responsible as a white man for any of the things that happened to my black brothers and sisters at the hands of other white men, because my thinking had been, it's enough that I feel grieved and I don't do anything to make it worse. So I'm good. But I've realized that I have the luxury of being able to tune out the news and go about my life if I want. And my black brothers and sisters do not have that luxury. James 2 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? The call of God toward love is a call toward responsibility and movement. And at the very beginning of time, if you think about Genesis 1, God spoke into the chaos and he brought order. And as imitators of God, we're called to do the, thing, the, the same things. And God, if you read scripture, not just the New Testament, all of it, God has always had a heart for the foreigner and the alien and the least of these. If you read the prophets, you'll see that their, their message to Israel wasn't just that they were breaking the letter of the law. It was, it was rage against injustice, against oppression. In Micah 6, God is speaking through him and, and Micah's kind of saying like, well, should I, should I sacrifice lots of things? And that's like the letter of the law. But, 
But the last part of it, verse eight, it says, he's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And of all the times and places throughout history that God could have chosen to put a Messiah on earth for us, he chose to put him at a place and time in history where he was a poor minority living under the impressive the oppression of a massive empire. I think it's the time to weep with those who weep, and that is a daunting task, and it's a messy one. If we really want to do more than just read a headline, we actually want to enter into other people's suffering, it's messy. Um, but the heart of the wise, Ecclesiastes says, is in the heart, is in the house of mourning. And I don't want to turn a blind eye to this. So I want you to know that your elders and your pastors are thinking through this. And quite frankly, we need wisdom. We all need wisdom. When Solomon first took the throne, God came to him in a dream. And he said, ask anything you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon, who's basically a kid, looked around and he said, I don't even know how to go out or come in. And he's saying, this, these people, this empire, this is too much for me. This is too great for me. So Solomon asked God for an understanding mind so that he could govern God's people and discern between good and evil. We find ourselves in a similar place, but I wanna end on a note of hope. Our hope is not just in the intentions of man or in legislation, though that might be something that God uses as an instrument to bring his kingdom on heaven as it is on earth, but our hope is in the sure promises of the gospel. And 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom. And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we have the spirit of the living God dwelling in us. 1 Corinthians 2 says that we have the mind of Christ. So when we go into these nebulous situations, the spirit of the living God goes with us. Wisdom is here in our midst. The brother of Jesus wrote these words in James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. So this morning I hold intention, great celebration because there's so many good things happening. And even in the midst of the darkness and the chaos, we have a rose because we have a new baby this week. Yesterday I was looking at Jude who's almost eight weeks old and he was giggling and cooing and starting to reach for things. And I thought he's growing and changing. We're all growing and changing. There's good and there's hope because our hope is in the sure promises of the gospel, but we all need wisdom and it's crying out in the streets. And James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he gives generously to all without finding fault. So friends, I may have said something that you didn't like. And if I did, please have grace with me because we're all trying to figure this out as we go along. But I know that not talking about it is not the way forward. So we're gonna figure this thing out together and I invite you to step with me into the chaos and into the mess and speak the truth in love. Pray with me. Dear God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for giving us godly wisdom. Thank you for giving us a way. Thank you for saving us from ourselves. Thank you that you know what's in our best interest when we don't. And thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ who has become for us 
the wisdom of God. May we look to him and as we mourn and as we rejoice, may we bring glory to you and step into the experience of all of our brothers and sisters. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.